Do you own a smartphone? Are you satisfied that because you own that smartphone, if you don't know something, you can just look it up? Is it important for you to know certain pieces of information that some people might just consider trivia? Come with us today as we explore these questions and discover why so many people have their head in a cloud. Welcome to the Nordonia Hills Branch Library podcast on nonfiction, a discussion of nonfiction specifically and reading generally. This month's podcast, Head in the Cloud. A very happy new year to you, and as is our sometime habit, we decided this month we would take a look at a book that is not necessarily self-help as much as it is somewhat of a, a raising of your awareness, as it were. William Poundstone is an author whose work this podcast admires and cherishes. In previous podcasts, we have mentioned two of his earlier works, the wonderful How Would You Move Mount Fuji, as well as the more recent Are You Smart Enough to Work at Google? Head in the Cloud is the most recent work by our wonderful Mr. Poundstone. The book seeks to describe or to explore the more recent trend of people not knowing basic facts and information, in some part because they have a device or access to being able to look that up almost instantly. The author has divided his book into three basic themes. Now, one of these themes is the Dunning-Kruger effect, and Mr. Poundstone did not name this effect. It's an actual real thing in psychology. You can look it up on Google. The internet isn't making us stupid, but it can make us less aware of what we don't know. Incomplete knowledge creates distorted mental maps of the world, and these misperceptions affect choices, behavior, and opinions in both the personal as well as the public realm. The second theme is the knowledge premium. The ability to answer so-called trivia questions correlates with higher income and other indexes of a successful life. This knowledge premium often remains even when you factor out formal education and age. There is a real-world value to knowing things, above and beyond a diploma or the social connections that would be made at a college. And the third part is strategies for a culturally illiterate world in which the author explores the ways individuals can best use today's media to stay informed. Now, this sounds like a tall order, and you may be thinking to yourself, this is a dry book. It is not a dry book. It is something that goes relatively quickly. It is a book that includes dozens and dozens of anecdotes and examples, and it is written in very plain spoken language. Not a whole lot of stilted academic speak in it. There's numerous sidebars and pop quizzes, as it were, where you can test your own knowledge base against some of the uh, questions that he asks in the book. There are examples of part of these anecdotes where he is actually discussing tests that have been given to samples of individuals, whether it's just samples of the general public 
samples of uh, students at various age levels, elementary, high school, college, etc. And then he goes on to explain some of the things that, that correlate with, with that kind of a finding, that kind of a result. The very first example that he gives to start his book off involves a party in Malibu in California. A group was engaged in the Hollywood sport of picking apart a movie. In this case, it was Kenneth Branagh's big-budget version of Hamlet. One person, making a joke, stated, maybe it was the screenwriter. To which the response from an, another nearby executive was, well, who wrote it? The first person said, well, I meant Shakespeare. But the executive, the second person, still didn't understand, because the person had no knowledge to connect Hamlet to Shakespeare. This executive had studied law at USC and had graduated with honors, but she didn't know that the movie Hamlet had been based on something that Shakespeare had written. He does not use these examples as a way to lord over how much smarter he is than everyone else or on how stupid these people are. He merely is reporting incidents or anecdotes, stories that have occurred. One particular theme that comes out through the book is the fact that millennials, because of their access to technology from a very early age and this ability to look up information, seem to have a much lower base internally of information that they have access to without looking things up. On pages 24 and 25, he provides a nearly two-page long list of things that less than 50% of millennials know. Now, I'm not going to read this whole list, but there are some facts that come screaming off the page that, for some of us, it will either A, immediately make you feel old, or B, immediately make you scratch your head and say, wow, I didn't know that that was such a hidden fact. For example, more than 50% of millennials can't name the longest river in South America. They can't name the mountain range that contains Mount Everest, or the emperor that fiddled while Rome burned. If that's too old, they also don't know who did Heartbreak Hotel or who the leads of Gone with the Wind or Casablanca were. They don't know what Frank Lloyd Wright did for a living or who invented the radio, the phonograph, the telegraph, or who demonstrated that lightning is electricity. Again, he gives this as examples, not by way of berating any individuals or groups or generations for that matter. Now, given the past examples, he does realize that obviously there's a generational knowledge gap. He cites the Beloit College mindset list that is published every late summer or early fall for the professors and staff at Beloit College, and you can find it online. And it basically tells the staff, the adult staff that are there, these are the things that your incoming freshman class may not be aware of. So if you use these as cultural references or as something that you know, they should know about, they may not be aware of what you're talking about. Beyond knowledge of facts or trivia, he also touches on how we think and how our memories are so related to our own lifespans. He explores a thing called the reminiscence bump. And what this is, is in any person's life, the news stories or the particular highlights of history that they tend to remember will lie between the time that person was 10 and that person was 30. 
a disproportionate share of our memories occur during that 20-year span between 10 and 30. By contrast, our early years between 0 and 10, people tend to remember very little. And when we get past age 30 into our middle-aged years, it tends to all blur together. And this reminiscence bump applies not only to the things that happen in our own personal life, but also how we perceive historical events. Correlating with that, people's view of historical events tends to be very focused on the more modern history, as opposed to things in the more distant past. By far, the decades or the years or the time frames for each of these windows that people were able to do best on were from, on average, 1948 to the present. Even given a thousand-year window from 0 to 1000 AD, many people could not name a single historical event that happened in that 1,000 years. So this 1948 date really kind of solidifies this idea that a lot of people's view of history is very much of the recent past, as opposed to a much broader timeline. In addition to how we think, he also discusses about what we think or what we believe. One of the chapters is entitled the one in five rule, which is basically one out of five Americans will believe most anything. He gives some examples. You know, one out of five people believe that witches are real. One in five people believe that the sun revolves around the earth. One in five people believe the lottery is a good investment. So throughout the book, he combines this ready availability of technology and access to the cloud the way people's minds work, how our memories process information and store it for retrieval, as well as how personal beliefs and other things affect the facts that we take in and the facts we discard and the things that we believe and the things we choose not to. He goes off on on a number of different side chapters discussing specific subjects, grammar, history, science, evolution, And along the way, he also discusses how people who have knowledge of these certain small facts or trivia, just basic things, things like that Shakespeare wrote Hamlet and whatnot, it tends to correlate with the fact that people do better or more successful in their lives. And he does state that this is beyond education level, but the people who tend to have knowledge in their heads tend to do better in life. He also talks about this on a macro level and the fact that a more informed voter, obviously, is a better voter, and that in a democracy, it is essential to have informed voters. This correlation with success in life goes beyond just mere knowledge of facts. He also discusses the correlation with reasoning. An example he gives is the marshmallow test, in which we will give you a marshmallow now, or if you wait 15 minutes you can have a second marshmallow. And then he puts the marshmallow on the table or the desk in front of the person, and they go off and see how long it will be before the the child decides to eat the marshmallow he's got or wait until the 15 minutes so he can have a second marshmallow. The average temptation time is six minutes. The child will hold out for six minutes. There are some children that obviously will just gobble the uh, marshmallow down immediately, and there are those that wait and get their second marshmallow. Now, they've done this test for years, but as time went on, they were able to correlate or to realize the fact that the kids that tended to wait for the marshmallow, the second marshmallow, were more successful in life than those who took the marshmallow immediately. Again, just another facet of this book in terms of the way we think and the way we reason. 
Now, if it sounds like I'm going all over the map in describing the contents of this book, it's somewhat accurate. This book does jump quickly from thing to thing, and he always manages to keep the narrative tied together, but at the same time, you know, none of the chapters are these long, you know, 40-page industrial strength type of chapters. They're all pretty rapid fire. They do go bing, 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 bing. You know, it comes in at just under 300 pages, about 295. Another wonderful effort from Mr. Poundstone. So if you're looking for a book to kick off the new year, something that is thoughtful, appealing, an easy read, and something that also basically discusses things that affect us all, I would highly suggest Head in the Cloud by William Poundstone. And if I might be permitted a brief digression here at the end, some of the things that Mr. Poundstone points to in this book are the very reasons why the library is such a valuable part of your community, because we provide that access to information that is so beneficial and so needed in today's society. Join us next month when we will have our annual Books You May Have Missed for 2016, an outtake from our live presentation, which will be occurring on January 17th. Until then, we'll see you at your Nordonia Hills Branch Library. Music by 20 Riverside, provided by Mevio's Music Alley. Music.mevio.com Thank you for listening.